Hello there, and welcome to the Thinking Fellows podcast. My name is Caleb, and today I'm joined by Dr. Scott Keith and Adam Francisco. This is the, uh, what today is for us is the Monday after Easter, and this show is going to be coming out tomorrow. And I said last week, if you listened to the show, that we would be doing our Easter episode after Easter, and that just happened because of uh, kind of the recording schedule and where our show drops. We, uh, we drop on Tuesday, uh, like mid a- or before the afternoon, right before the afternoon, between 10 and 11, based on when I get the show notes done. And uh, because of that, I felt like it was kind of like a long way, even though it was still Holy Week, it was a long way out to Easter to do it last Tuesday. And we're kind of closer in proximity here, and it's still fresh on people's minds. You know, they've, uh, they went to church maybe several times last week, and finally with their Easter service uh, this Sunday. And what I wanted to focus on was how the cross is the center of our theology and do uh, an episode tied into the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and how that is the center of not just... Um, you know, this week, but is the center of all of our theology. And really the core of what we do on the Thinking Fellows is, I hope, that we get to uh, the cross of Christ in everything we do that is through our doctrine, through uh, the evangelism and apologetics episodes that we do, and even, I think, through church history. Because when we do those episodes on great thinkers of the Christian faith, I think the category that we use to determine if somebody was a great thinker is, did they keep Christ? in his work on the cross center uh, in their theology, or did that come out in their theology? Uh, And so I think this has been essential to what we do. Uh, I don't think that's any surprise really though to long listeners of the show, right? Because we've always kind of stated that, I think, is that uh, if we're not doing that, the show's kind of not doing... It's job. It's job. Yeah, Uh, or we're not doing our job with the show. Yeah, so... Yeah, so I was just... What happened uh, this week is my, um, uh, I'm far away from the, having moved from the church that we regularly go to. And so on Good Friday, um, I woke up with the kids and Erica and made everybody some coffee and we sat down and I decided, hey. To make Esther some coffee? She, you know, (laughs) she loves making the coffee. She doesn't want to taste, she's tasted it a couple times. She's not a fan, not a fan of coffee. Two-year-olds, maybe your two-year-old likes coffee. That would be scary, right? Yeah, I don't have a two-year-old. So. Mine like coffee and bourbon. And bourbon. <laughs> Can I say that on the show? Sarcastically. <laughs> yeah, I'm joking. In, in air quotes. <laughs> um, and so what I did is I decided, and, and I guess this is a testament to that this is a tool, is I opened up the hymnal, right? And there's um, you can use the services in there or the setting for daily prayer. And we opened up with some prayers, and there's prayers for all different types of occasion in there. And then I opened up uh, the Bible and read the Passion Story uh, for the kids and my wife. And what hit me as I was reading it was how there seemed to be, uh, and I read it out of John, um, there seemed to just be time and time again where this was trying to say that this actually happened, that this was historical, and that this may, that even, for instance, in the resurrection, that this was a surprise to even the closest followers of Jesus, the disciples, right? You have uh, John 29, where it says, for as of yet, they did not uh, understand what the scriptures were saying that he must rise. So, um, so I thought, okay, let's, let's cover some of that today. Uh, and I'm gonna pitch some questions towards Dr. Keith and Dr. Francisco about uh, how this kind of plays out. And I wanted to start with you, uh, my dad, Dr. Keith here. So Luther's Call kind me of- Scott. Scott, call you Scott, yeah, that's great. 
Isn't that awkward for me on the show? It's awkward for me to observe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never know what to do. When people talk to me, they, I'm like, oh, I, I usually refer to you as Dr. Keith or Scott, and people are like, you mean your dad? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but isn't that kind of, yeah, whatever. We'll figure it out one day. But Luther famously is famous for saying, uh, the cross alone is our theology. And I thought that kind of played into Easter well. And how does, what does that mean in regards to the way we approach doctrine of the scriptures? It means, I think, I mean, if I were to say that, I won't speak for Luther, but if I were to say that, um, what I would mean by it uh, was that without the cross, without the death, and, and I'll, well, I had since we're you know, in Easter season and resurrection of Christ, there's no reason for doing this thing that we call theology. Um, at all. I mean, if without the death of Christ and the atonement won for us, the, the pain for our sins and the consequences of our sins and the resurrection, the victory over sin, death, and the devil that comes through that resurrection and as the first fruits of our resurrection, there's no reason for doing this thing that we call theology. Um, why would we? We would be one among a myriad of other systems just trying to earn the favor of an unknown God. Uh, by doing you know this or that that uh, may or may not matter in the end, um, so the reason for doing theology at all um, and the reason the cross is our theology is because it 's all we have it 's all we have to cling to it's all it 's our only hope it's um, not only is it the only thing that matters towards our salvation but it's the it 's the thing too that is and our, and I get we'll talk with Adam about this i 'm sure that's verifiable, that actually happened, right? That um, the death of this person who claimed to be God and that showed that he was God by various signs, miracles, fulfilled prophecies, um, and eventually raising himself from the dead, these things were seen by people, um, and at, at times many people, um, and were attested to and written down and witnessed. And uh, so it's it's the verifiable act um, that worked out our salvation, and it's the reason why a theology matters at all, because it discusses and it um, talks about and it works through what it means that Christ died for you. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting because you'll hear a lot of people go, you know, this is uh, like Christmas, you'll hear like the reason for the season is Jesus right? But when you get to, I think, Easter right, it really is, if we are actually looking at this, this is what boils down to the whole reason why we're doing this at all. And if um, the resurrection, the crucifixion didn't happen, if that week hadn't happened, we have nothing, right? It's not yeah. just a fairy tale. I mean, you could say the reason for, for any kind, for worshiping at all, yeah. is the death and resurrection of Christ. Otherwise, and and the proclamation of that death and resurrection for you, the sinner, as you sit there in the pew, is why why you go to services, why you, um, even in the Lutheran church, when people argue for the liturgy, for doing the historic liturgy, when they do it well, they argue that it's God coming to you with his gifts through every part of the service. And that's why it's important. You know, that through the invocation, God is coming to you as you ca you call upon his name and Father, Son, and Soul, Holy Spirit. Um, when Even when you confess the creed in the service, you're, your confession is also a profession um, of faith that is going out and that the Holy Spirit's working through that to create and engender faith. I mean, all of these things are God coming to us 
to bring to us, literally, to in baptism, pour it over our head, and communion, put it into our mouth, and the proclamation of the word, put it into our ears, God coming to us in his death and resurrection. And in that moment, you know, on Golgotha, paying for the sins, and in the moment of the proclamation to you, bringing it to you personally. I think that's uh, really important. One of the things I noticed uh, yesterday um, in this uh, like mixed service environment is that some of the words in the in this contemporary songs were all about the celebration. Yeah. And you know, while uh, Easter or other church holidays are a celebration of these things that have happened, uh, more importantly, they are the the gifts and the reality actually delivered. Right. to you, right? And if you lose sight of that and Easter just becomes right. a celebration, you've kind of lost uh, what Easter actually accomplished. Right. Right. Um, so Adam, is I was reading John's gospel, right? And there's, you know, the, uh, the, resur- the crucifixion and the resurrection are in all four gospels. Um, so is that, the, am I right in thinking that that's where like a lot of the historical apologetic comes? Luke obviously too, right? But are there particular, in, is that a stronger, where, where are we looking at for like these particular instances? Well, you, I think you mentioned it earlier when you were reading the Gospel of John, it seemed like a lot of things were included for apologetic purposes. And go to John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, I think. My internet's not working, so I'm, because I'm I don't have books anymore. But uh, it says these things are written so that you might believe, believe. that Jesus the Christ yeah. is the Son of the living God. So all these things are written down. These, you could sort of expand that and say the Gospels themselves were written uh, to persuade the audience, whether they're being read to an audience or a person's reading them for themselves, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, in terms of the development of how Christians defended or advocated for the faith, uh, early in the early church, first 300 and 400 years, give or take, uh, the apologetic was from uh, the resurrection of Jesus as a verification or vindication of his claims and fulfilled prophecy. When you get into the Middle Ages, the the context changes. Is that because um, at that point, the at least the European world is majoritively or even per- perhaps all Christian in a sense? Well, it takes a long time for that to happen. So... So the Roman Empire comes to an end, at least in the Western world, in the 5th century. And probably, it takes about 500 years for Europe to slowly but surely become Christianized. And you know, the records, source material on, on the, what we call the early Middle Ages, up till about 1000 AD, is slim. Uh, but you get little pictures here and there of, say, like St. Boniface, the patron saint of Germany, who's... Uh, the the guy who eventually was killed by barbarian pagans, but he did a, a tremendous amount of work amongst the northern Germanic tribes uh, trying to persuade them uh, that Christianity, if you will, was better than Thor worship or what have you. Right. And he would, at least the, the records we have, suggest he would um, set up contests. You know, um, I'm going to cut down this oak tree that you gather around to worship Thor, uh, and uh, Thor's not going to strike me down, that's going to be proof that uh, my God's stronger than yours, sort of, you know, things like that. Um, so like Old Testament but, prophet showdown? Yeah, now, so how much of that is legend? How much of that is, did it actually happen that way? Hard to say, but when we finally get a, a plethora of literature 
in the medieval period, so this thousand-year period, it's at the time that pretty much most all of Europe is Christian. And uh, so the context has changed. It's no longer rank unbelief um, challenging, uh, you know, pagan unbelief challenging Christianity. Now the, the great challenges come from, from you know, some quarters of Judaism and, and Islam. And so they already have a... Um, like with Jews, they already have, you know, they have a trust in the Old Testament, and so the arguments are primarily exegetical, you know. Um, when it comes to Islam, it's usually a, an argument against, you know, just, just bringing down Islam, the reliability of the Quran, and, and things like that, and then a positive argument that did include, but was not just limited to an argument from the resurrection. Then you get into the modern period, and that's where the argument from the resurrection begins to pick up again, the historical apologetic that we've talked um, extensively about in the last two and a half years we've been doing the show. Um, and I think that stems from what we've talked about uh, in episodes about epistemology and mm -hmm, how people yeah. accept and get yeah. knowledge. We've kind of come, in, our, in Western culture, we've sort of come full circle, if you will, um, in terms of the history of the church, you know, it starts off 300, 400 years of encountering um, resistance and hostility from people of, you know, not theistic backgrounds, not Muslims and Jews primarily, yeah. you know. And so uh, then you get this period where people have that basic assumption. Now we're in the modern period where people have dumped that assumption again. And so we're kind of, if you will, some, the way some people describe it is there's this sort of pre-church era I don't really like this language, but for lack of a better way of putting it, first 300 years, then this churched area era in the Middle Ages through the early modern period, just past the Reformation, then post-churched period that looks much more like the early church than it does, say, the, the context of the Reformation. Yeah, where you're you dealing know? with people who have an entirely different world. Yeah, it's, it, all bets are off. Mm -hmm. Um, inter Scott said earlier, or Dr. Keith, or... Just you, Scott. Uh, My Lord, have mercy. That's enough. <laughs> you, the, really enough. The, the crucifixion, the resurrection is our, our only hope. And I, you also added that it's also our only foundation. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think it, you can say it enough. If it wasn't for the resurrection, we're just... Wasting time. Yeah, I like how you put it, that we're just sort of like every, every other religious or faith tradition, as people call it now... Um, we're just trying to appease this unknown God. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I was sitting in church yesterday um, and was thinking, it's, it's interesting that the, the real antagonists uh, you know, against Christianity, the new atheists uh, and others who accuse, you know, who, who actually have it as part of their agenda, the destruction or the, you know, the deconstruction of Christianity, why don't they go after the resurrection yeah, they in, a, in a serious way. Not in a you know? serious way. Because if you want to get rid of Christianity, if it's such a problem as a, like Richard Dawkins thinks it is, yeah. um, go after that. But they don't. They go after miracles as a category first. Right. They go after it philosophically, abstractly. Mm -hmm. It's not, uh, they don't go after it factually. and Not after the history and the, the testimony of the resurrection. Right. I, th I think of, I was watching this uh, kind of a debate between John Lennox, of Oxford, a mathematician mm -hmm. at Oxford University, now retired, I think, and Richard Dawkins, who was also there. And the title was, Has Science Buried God? And um, John Lennox, moved into kind of a historical apologetic 
and he says, he, it's a conversation slash a, uh, a debate, and he, he turns to Richard Dawkins, he says, one of the things that troubles me, Richard, about your attacks against Christianity is you don't take the his, historicity of it all very seriously. You just simply write it off immediately yep. by saying things that are just simply are absurd, yeah. that maybe Jesus didn't exist in the first place. Right. Right. So, the, the phrase that always bugs me is, well, we know we can't believe this mm-hmm. as history because it's um, it's recording things that we know can't happen. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, you have this sort of presupposition. Yeah, yeah we know. We right? know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, I think sort of the key is to try to lump Christianity in with the rest of the world's religions, right? Reduce yep. it. You'll hear that the, in debates like that or even just in articles, the damage that religion has done, Western religion mm-hmm. has done, things mm-hmm. like that. I think very again, common these days. Like you said, it's the key. The key for them is to get it away from the cross, to get it away from the resurrection. Um, because if you can make it like the rest of the world's religions, you can have a philosophical debate yep. so that it's all meaningless or purposeless and that uh-huh. it's just as yeah. legitimate not to yeah. believe anything. Well, and the minute you sort of get sucked into the philosophical debate, you're off the point, you're off yeah. track, right? Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's easy to get sucked into because it, it, it makes me as angry as anybody else to sort of um, have, see people give away whole categories of knowledge and epistemolo- epistemology and, and to just attack. Um, really, what's, what's uh, being attacked, I think, more, and you, were, you and I were talking about this on our hike the other day, mm-hmm. Caleb, is what's being attacked more and more in the Western world is empiricism, really, mm-hmm. this idea that you can yeah. um, know things or that the way to, quote-unquote, know things is by gathering facts Mm-hmm. Um, that are available yeah. to your external senses, and mm-hmm. um, but anyway, I was going to answer your question um, in a way because I was just looking. Adam brought up John twenty, and I'll read the verses thirty and thirty one in a second. But you you nailed them anyway. But John chapter twenty, if you just look at the the headings in John chapter mm-hmm. twenty, which are of course added later, they're not they weren't original to the text of the book of John. But they you know in a way they come from the, the theme. Text. Yeah, right? it's very much logi method kind of stuff. Um, but if you just look at the head, just read the headings, right? Um, it's very easy to see, uh, it, even if this wasn't intended to be apologetic, you know, formally, it's definitely meant to show that Christ is actually risen from the dead. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. that he's actually alive, that he's yeah. not a ghost, that he's walking around. That's probably uh, a much, that, I mean, I think that's a much better way of putting it. Yeah. Um, that's what they're intended to do. Yeah. Well, even um, earlier than 20, for instance, I mean, one of the things that struck me was um, John talks about the, the soldier who pierces his side. Mm-hmm. And how right, he, exactly. He, after that moment, he became a believer and that he's still walking around today right. telling people that, this, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Jesus truly died and that yep. he truly rose. Yeah. I think yesterday in, in you know, the, the three-year lectionary series, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think that's what we're on, too. The, yeah. Okay, the resurrection... Um, story is from Luke 24 and it's a, it's, yeah. a, it's a, that I mean I John and Luke of course are are fantastic for all these nitty-gritty details mm-hmm. uh, Matthew 2 uh, Mark he's he's the Mark Brighton used to say the gunslinging gospel because everything's and immediately Quite. and immediately yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. but uh, in Luke 24 when the the women go to the tomb and find it empty, mm-hmm. and they come back, and this is around verse 10 or 11 or 12, uh, they come back and they tell the men, mm-hmm. Peter and others, right? Yeah, I have this written down. And uh, uh, it, Luke writes something like, and it seemed to them, the men, uh, that they were just talking idle mm-hmm. tales or something like that. Uh-huh. You know? 
Um, and so it's, it's interesting in the gospel, you get this sort of, it, it, it's almost like they're written by people who have no shame, if you will. Yeah. You know, they're admitting they didn't believe this. Oh, right. Even when you've got eyewitnesses, women, you know, Mary Magdalene, Mary, you know, the mother of Jesus, uh, I think Joanna, I don't know who that is, and there's a few others. Yeah. Uh, Luke only, only, he names three and then says, and others, and I think John and yeah. some other names. Um, they're, even though these, there are these eyewitnesses, these women they've been with all along, and they yeah. know that they're reliable, mm-hmm. right? They still don't believe it because like the modern mind, things like this don't, don't happen. happen. Dead people don't rise. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's one of the things to point out is that some people will think that because these are quote-unquote ancients, that they believe that they saw these kind of miracles all the time. No, they didn't. That's yeah. why they were so pr- proficient at killing, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. especially in the Roman case, they they knew that if they were to kill this person when they when they were dead, they stayed dead, and that was the goal to have this person dead and out of the way. And I think of, I mean, you talk about there's no shame here. Jesus appears to Thomas. I mean, we've probably done this on the show, but let's talk about no. Why would you include that? I mean, he's one of your number. He continues to be one of your number after the account of you embarrassing the heck out of him in the gospel that you write. Yeah. But they include this. Thomas does not believe. Yeah. Like he he does not believe. He says, "I am. I will not believe." Mm-hmm. This is a load of hooey. This does not happen. He's the empiricist in the bunch. He's like, mm-hmm. "I need to see him. I need to touch him. I need to put my fingers in the holes in his hand. I need to thrust my hand into his pierced side, or I will not believe." Mm-hmm. Um, now, if we were to get back to your original question, if we were sort of working out our salvation by means of uh, something we could do to one of a myriad of unknown gods, we would probably figure that by being so demanding that God would be, you know, spiteful of us and would smite us down. But the God that we have accounted in the New Testament actually then appears to him and provides the flesh Mm -hmm. for him to thrust his fingers into and and his side. And then I was just looking at... um, Luke 24 you brought up, you know, and I'm sure it'll come up in one of the, the further readings in the next couple of weeks, but on the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, which answers your question, uh, Caleb, about, you know, why is this so important to us? And I mean, it literally comes out here when, um, I lost the verse, but when Christ is teaching Oh, there it is, verse 27. And when Christ is teaching these disciples who he's walking with on the road to Emmaus, he says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Mm -hmm. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So the reason Luther makes that statement, the reason I think we could repeat it, has to be because Christ himself taught that this is what it means. That this is the center. That's right. That he is the center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, I mean. These guys didn't believe either, by the way. And at the, <laughs> after he breaks the bread, they go running back to the other disciples to yeah. say mm-hmm. he really yeah. is alive. Yeah, and back to the, I mean, all that, and then back to just the women being included as the, I mean, this is not meant to appease the, the feminist crowd, but that's a remarkable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're trying to persuade your readers or your audience that this stuff is true. You're not going to use You are in that in the first century. century. 
for whatever reason, well, it's for Jewish reasons primarily, uh, you are not, or cultural reasons, you are not, you, you don't trust the account of women. Right. That's why the, the Peter and, and others didn't trust them, but why do the authors include them? Yeah. Um, probably because they're trying to record what happened. Yeah. What, what actually <laughs> happened. Um, and so the, the Gospels read like that. These are guys who are doing their best to record what happened from their their source material or what they saw with their own eyes in the case of and John. They, and not only do Matthew. you include the women, women, but you you actually make a point to record accurately the the, the people that he first appears to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that he appears yeah. to them also, but the right. first appearance mm-hmm. um, as recorded in John 20 is yeah. to Mary Magdalene. Yeah, and I, I, again, I think what's really interesting is the amount of disbelief um, recorded. And that, you know, mm-hmm. the amount of or yeah. lack of understanding mm-hmm. and things like that. I mean, I, I think if you were just trying to make like a bulletproof thing, right, you would have everybody expecting, waiting for that resurrection. Or to repeat Christ, how foolish you are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know that old <laughs> saying that, that the victors are the ones who write history? Yeah. In the case of, the, the, of Christianity, in the case of the, the authors of the Gospels and the New Testament, these weren't the victors. No. 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 No, they were hiding yeah, in a building. Right. Well, I think this is a good spot for our break, so we're going to go ahead and, and do that, and then we'll be right back. Hey there, and welcome to our break. Today we are going to uh, talk about the Here We Still Stand conference that's happening this October. And along with that, we're going to offer up a discount code for registration for Thinking Fellows listeners who want to come to the show. Um, The theme of this year's conference is the theology of the cross, which ties in nicely to this episode, but also ties in nicely to the theme of doing something sort of historical every year. Last year we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. This year is actually the 500th anniversary of the Heidelberg Disputation, where Luther introduced the theology slash theologian of the cross idea. Um, and so this year we're, we're running with that. It's going to be a great conference. We have a lot of speakers. Dr. Keith will kind of run through the details of the conference um, here to kind of catch people up to speed. So this year, um, the conference will be held October 18 through 20. Um, Again, we'll be down in San Diego at the Hyatt Regency Mission Bay and Spa in San Diego. Um, The theme this year is the theology of the cross, as Caleb said. We have an incredible number of speakers, uh, several of whom studied with Gerhard Ferdy, um, who really wrote the book um, on being a theologian of the cross, did one of the... um, only available uh, commentaries in English on uh, the Heidelberg Disputations called on being a theologian on the cross. And two men that studied with him will both be there, Jim Nestigan and Steve Paulson, um, other speakers that we have coming. Um, again, music is done this year by Bill Brimmer and Blake Flatley, which will be fun. Um, this year again, we uh, Jacob Smith um, from uh, Works with Mockingbird is also an Episcopal pastor in New York City. He'll be there doing our devotions. He's a great theologian, a great preacher, and great teacher, so that'll be very, very good. Chad Bird um, is doing a session called Your God is Too Glorious. Uh, Dan Price will be doing one called Being Crucified with Christ. 
Steve Paulson is doing the, the primary one on, called on being a theologian of the cross. John Pless from Fort Wayne Seminary is doing, I cannot by my own reason or strength, the theology of the cross and the catechisms. Um, I'll be doing a session with Rod Rosenblatt and Jim Nestigan called uh, The Cross the Pul- and the Pulpit, Handing Over the Goods. Um, That's going to be pretty awesome. Yeah, it'll be fun. (laughs) I probably won't contribute much, but I'll be there. (laughs) On top of that, one of the things uh, that listeners of this show should take note is that the first day of the conference is actually a podcasting day. Yeah, I was going to get to that. So we did that last year. It's called the pre-podcast conference and lunch on Thursday, October 18th. Um, Starts out at 11 a.m. with Ringside with the Jagged Word guys. New edition this year is 12 o'clock. Um, will be Let the Bird Fly with Wade Johnston and uh, his crew. And they are um, officially now part of the 1517 Podcasting okay. Network oh, yeah. that we've talked about before. Uh, their podcast is complimentary to the Thinking Fellows. Uh, in fact, the idea, the name of their podcast comes from uh, Ferdy, right? Yeah. Let the Bird Fly. Yep. Um, one o'clock, 40 minutes in the Old Testament with Chad Bird and Dan Price. Two o'clock, Front Porch with the Fitzes. 3 o'clock, Virtue in the Wasteland, and uh, rounding it out at 4 o'clock. We were last last year, too. Yeah, we are. Um, The Thinking Fellows. And we'll have the whole crew there, um, and we will probably also have Jim Nestigan and Steve Paulson. So it'll be an unruly time. Yeah, it's it's a little hard to manage the live podcast, um, and this year we're going to definitely make sure that things are... Do our own recording. Uh, we're going to backup record it because um, there was a mix-up with the recording studio last time. So, But I would say the, the people that um, saw the podcast live with Steve Paulson last year, I mean, while they're upset that they didn't get to see the audio or get to hear the audio later, they were pretty happy they were in the audience That's right. when it happened. And so if, if you're uh, at all interested in coming to the conference, there's, there's a lot of good reasons to come. Tickets are how much? $199. Um, and then if you want to come to the, and you should, come to the podcast pre-conference and lunch, that's $30, and it includes your lunch. Yeah, $30, and, and that's, of course, you're getting an extra day. I think that's what, if each podcast is about an hour, so you're talking like another six hours of content yeah, I mean, plus it's, lunch. It's a really good deal. The lunch I mean, is cool, too, because you can actually sit down with us and eat lunch and talk with us. Well, I challenge you at any other conference um, to find this these speakers all together and the, the breadth of speakers that we have too. I mean, we really have got the, ba- the best from, Dave Zoll will be there again, so I think we've got the best from the law gospel Anglican crowd, um, and we've got really the best of Lutheranism on the, on the theology of the cross here this year. I'm not sure who else we could get that would, that would add something to this conference. Um, Very cool. And so it's really a deal. The venue, even Adam likes the venue. Uh, the the venue is incredible. Yeah, pools, uh, hot tubs. Yeah, I mean it's and the price for what you're getting and the food and adult beverage included is, uh, I mean it's really a bargain. So yeah, it's great. Sign up now, and you can get a further bargain by using a discount code when you check out. Um, it helps us out. It lets us know who's coming, who listens to the Thinking Fellows or found out via this. The code is TF18. It's, uh, it's so hard to remember, but um, it's TF18. Really, really short, really simple. I'll also have that code in the show notes if you forget it or if you need to copy and paste it in. Um, and that'll get you a discounted ticket uh, to to the conference, which is really cool. And um, I am supposed to let everybody know that it will not get further discounted than that Thinking Fellows codes. Well, we had some holdouts last year. Yeah, and, and, and we, are, we are registering fewer people this year. I know that people usually grow these things. Um, I made an argument for 
shrinking it for shrinking it a little bit um just so that we could keep the quality as high as it was last year mm-hmm. and the content as great as it was last year and still be able to pull this thing off. Yeah. So if if you were holding out for like I think we did some holiday discounts last year that were pretty big, that's not happening this yeah. year. So if you do want the cheapest ticket possible, it's going to be TF18. Yeah. All right. Uh let's And Adam will even sign a book for you. If yeah, that's right. If you catch him. Right? Sure. Yeah. See? <laughs> uh so let's let's just round up this episode we'll just uh finish just bring it up. any old random book just any book. Or else. i didn't mean one of his books i mean it's like you guys like, are impossible to keep control bring of. mere christianity or something say would you sign this oh forging <laughs> oh that's so bad sorry forging signatures so what about a a forged resurrection is a resurrection fake adam so we, we've talked about the historicity of this, how the Gospels try to lead you to uh, the fact that this is uh, a reality. Uh, in fact, that some people may have doubted this reality and that there's time and time again uh, proof. But uh, when we approach this today, you have a book that's centered on this. Uh, how do we deal with people who say, well, it might accept the historicity of Jesus' life and maybe even the historicity of his death, but reject the resurrection? Yeah, that's the big, the million dollar question, Right. I think there's there's a lot of uh, barriers people or that people have to believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead. One is what we talked about earlier on the first half of the show, the philosophical assumptions people have, you know, uh, that miracles just don't happen, dead people don't rise, and so while the gospels from this this particular vantage point, while the gospels might be a good source material for a historical Jesus. Um, the miracles in the Gospels are not to be believed. Right. right? That's, a, that's in a lot of uh, uh, literature out there. Uh, the big name here would be Bart Ehrman and his introduction to the New Testament in the early church, which is used as a standard textbook in most university classrooms. He's got a whole little um, section right in the middle of the book on the issue of miracles and history and makes the point, uh, it's kind of a contradictory little piece, it's only two pages, he says that miracles are so improbable that we're to regard them as impossible. Yeah. Um, so he's smart, enough not to, he's smart enough not to say that they are impossible, right? Right. Because that's, that's from, scientifically not a, not a great thing to say. Mm-hmm. But he's saying that the likelihood of such a thing happening is so unlikely uh, that you might as well regard it as impossible. Right, and then and the historian, sort of as an analog to the scientist, is always to look for the natural explanation. Right. Um, so think of think of the 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 arguments for God's existence kind of debates, where you get like a, to use Richard Dawkins' name yet again. Um, he will say just to save face that um, there is no explanation for how time, space, matter, energy, and everything else came into existence. But we ought not jump to a supernatural explanation. Let's hold out for a natural explanation. And so for Bart Ehrman, that, that's the way he operates in, when it comes to history. Even though the uh, natural explanation might turn out to be, you know, some chance occurrence that well, is here's so the, here's the Here's the hidden <laughs> sort of assumptions. They're not hidden, but he's assuming a naturalistic, materialistic, or physicalist yeah. worldview from the beginning. And if yeah. you, I mean, assuming that's the case, well, that might be the standard right now. 
That begs a lot of questions. How do it you, does. the epistemological questions and otherwise, how do you know that's the case, right? Well, and then and, one of the funny things to me too is, is as you see like um, more and more uh, study into our universe done, you see more and more pattern, organization, things like that, that they keep uh, dwindling down to chance or, you know, some kind well, of the, process of elimination over time. That- or they'll say that's what you're dumping that on. Right. You're, you're interpreting that through a particular lens to make it look orderly. I think one of the things, I mean, we've kind of gotten off the track a little bit here, but one of the things that's interesting is that the, the, the chance um, happening of every, everything coming together as it would need to be in order to explain sort of existence of the universe stuff. Um, in a quote-unquote naturalistic sort of way is so rare mm-hmm. that it becomes like a miracle anyway. Mm-hmm. That's you right, know? the probability so, is so small. Yeah, it's probability yeah. so small. So, okay, maybe miracles don't happen every day, mm-hmm. right? And that they're very unlikely to happen. But they're no more unlikely than universe you know, the cosmos to existence. blasting into existence, right? <laughs> yeah. Which we don't yeah. see that happen every day either. You would think <laughs> that these people spend a lot of time in casinos, right? Yeah. Because if you roll the dice enough, you're going to become a millionaire. Now, that doesn't, uh, do, yeah. that doesn't do anything for the centrality of Christ <laughs> and the resurrection, but it, yeah. it yeah. certainly is. It's, it's an interesting reveal into the mindset of the people who yeah. are yeah. constantly on yeah. the attack. Yeah, so you you get a lot of that, like in the in my world, in the literature, you know, the apologetic stuff and the anti-Christian literature and so on. Another big stumbling block is, and it's, it shouldn't be, but it is, is the issue of the texts themselves. Are the texts reliable, right? Every, you know, most people say, yeah, generally speaking, they're in terms of historical value. Get the miracles, push the miracles to the side. It, it's it's got has some historical value. Bart Ehrman will grant that. Um, but if you, it's becoming, in, or people are becoming increasingly aware, primarily through the work, starting with the Jesus Seminar in the 1990s, and now the popular work of Bart Ehrman, of uh, this discipline called text criticism that says if you compare all the manuscripts we've got, thousands of them, uh, before the printing press, and, and you'll notice that there are, there are no two texts agree perfectly. 100%. So they'll, they'll say, well, Good heavens, if uh, John's name was misspelled in one manuscript and, and, and spelled in another way in a different manuscript, or the word order gets changed, what else is changed in the text? Right. What else has been added or taken away from the text? Uh, we can account for, interestingly, people who engage in text criticism who don't have a philosophical, theological axe to grind will say that we can actually know from all these thousands of manuscripts with a 97 to 99% degree of probability what the original autograph, the original manuscript of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said. Uh, There's a few things we're still working on trying to figure out. But most people aren't aware, because that's a hard field, right? Text criticism, I mean. But one of the things when, when I know I do it, when I go out and teach this stuff, and I'm sure Adam does too, is that it's it's very easy to point out to to just the general public that um, they do, they make very few decisions based on 100% certainty in their life. Right. You know, life, most life and death decisions yeah. that they make are not made based on the requirement of having 100% certainty. Or probably even anywhere close to or it. Or probably even anywhere close to it. And so to say that something is not 100% um, mm-hmm. is not necessarily saying that it can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. Because most of the decisions that we make every single day, life and death and otherwise, that require our trust in order to make the decision, 
are made at a level of probability and probably not 100%, you know, even 90, 90, 90% in many cases, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trust me, we drive on the freeways in Southern California all the time. We make life and death decisions based on uh, probabilities of it working out okay that are much lower than 90%. Right, right. <laughs> Constantly. Yeah. I think of um, the one I was reading about most recently um, is in the Gospel of Matthew where you know, Jesus is betrayed and Matthew writes something like, and this was done to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah said, mm-hmm. they'd be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. Well, that's not in the book of Jeremiah, right? And it's in Zechariah. Right. And people go nuts, you know, oh my gosh, did Matthew make a mistake? Or, and they, they, they never stopped to think, well, is it perhaps that the, the way the Old Testament was arranged back in Matthew's day, um, there's a split between Jeremiah and Zechariah, or right. maybe, you know, there's all sorts of other explanations apart in, a, in addition to maybe Matthew got it wrong, right? right? I don't think Matthew got it wrong, but there's, but that's not. there's other ways of thinking about it. And so a lot of people are expecting a, kind of like a, what Muslims claim about the Quran, that it's been perfectly preserved through the centuries, which it hasn't been, but uh, um, they're expecting the same with the biblical text. Yeah. Um, partly that's because the more fundamentalist side of Christianity we'll claim that. has been the most vocal in asserting the character of the biblical text, you know, that it's, you know, that it's um, inerrant in a particular way. That is, it's been perfectly preserved. You know, God has like actually moved the scribes' hands, if you will. So not only the Old Testament authors, but the the copyists too. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's not a, by no means a historical position in Christianity. No. Um, it's actually relatively new, and it's there's no promise in the New Testament that that God, the Holy Spirit's going to observe the scribes right. through the centuries as they're doing that. So, um, partly it's the you know, sometimes Christ, Christians, well-meaning Christians, have over-asserted things yeah. in the public arena when it comes to this apologetic context. That just uh, once you you look at it closely, yeah. yeah it well, and I was going to bring this up at the uh, towards the last half of the episode. But that it seems to me that in this era where Christianity is declining again, um, especially um, in Europe and coming over to America, that it seems to be, I think, cor- there's at least a correlation with the decline of the gospel and the cross being the center of mm-hmm. the, the Christian doctrine and the Christian preaching there and moving to things like you know, uh, arguing the, the inerrancy of Scripture, even the English translations of Scripture and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or or particular translations. That's right. Or There's translations or per- over against others. Or particular moral values instead, yeah. and things like that. You know, just um, making those center. Sure. Not that not that inerrancy isn't important. Not that moral was, values aren't important. I was thinking about that at the break. This this whole question again of Luther's comment. You know, uh, Christ being the center and the only reason for doing theology. It's so funny if you if you listen to the words of Christ um, as recorded by the apostles. I don't know how you come to any other conclusion, honestly. The you know what we do right. is centered on Christ and Him crucified. Even that that line um, uh, from Mark twenty four or from Luke twenty four, you know, where on on the road to Emmaus, where Christ is saying, "All these speak about me." Yeah, all these things speak about me, and it's the only reason. Yeah, you know, he he literally taught them down for to learn the Old Testament and to see that the Old Testament was about. Christ right. and the and the and particularly when you hear him talk um, 
on his way to be crucified, you hear him talk about how the scriptures are about the Messiah dying and rising. Yeah. I mean, constantly. And then you get to what Adam referred to earlier in John chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. So not just the ones already recorded, Mm -hmm. right, here, but many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these things are written that you may Believe. believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. And then you go into um, 1 Corinthians 15, which I think is that entire chapter is an argument for Christ as the center of Christianity and, and, and Christ as the center of all Christian teaching. In other words, I'm gonna get a little weird here, but if you're showing up you know, and devoting your life to a Christianity that does not have Christ's death and resurrection as the center of it, for you, for your salvation, you might want to ask yourself a question. Like, why? Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, Paul starts out with uh, the resurrection of Christ where he literally defines the gospel, the gospel message as the death and resurrection of Christ and then does more of what we've been doing here where he talks about um, uh, died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he starts listing all the people that he appeared to, right? Um, Cephas to James, um, to more than 500 brethren, some of whom have fallen, already fallen asleep. And then to me. And then he just goes, talks about how the resurrection of Christ from the dead applies to you as the first fruits of your resurrection from the dead. And that, that that's the only reason why we're messing around with any of this stuff at all. And then that's when you get the famous line from Paul, uh, if Christ be not raised, we are of all men most miserable. We've deceived ourselves, we've deceived others, and our faith is in vain. In other words, there's no doing any of this. Mm-hmm. There's no practicing any of this. There's no studying any of this. There's no praying about any of this. There's no teaching any of this to your children if we're leaving out the message if Christ, of Christ's death and resurrection for them, for their salvation, for and, their life, for their freedom. And then the critiques of the, the enemies of Christianity become true. They become that you are just, you know, it's just a security blanket to make you feel better. It's just something to keep you busy on your weekends. It's just tradition that you're not going to drop from your family and all these things. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the, that becomes really true if the death and resurrection of Christ is not about what you're doing. It was such a, dead people don't rise. They knew it. It was such a game-changing event when they saw it happened Mm -hmm. that it became the center. Mm -hmm. I think it was the the Jews in Thessalonica, Acts 17, the first like third of the text. Paul's there and and as Luke records, um, he, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue and I think for three weeks or something like that and and reasoned with the Jews from the Old Testament or from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Spoken of in the, in there, and then uh, then there's sort of like an uproar, right? And they go they go back to this guy Jason's house, and there's it's like a mob surrounds the house, and some city officials come out, and and uh, they're complaining. These these men, Paul and and others, who have turned the world upside down, have yes. come here also. And, yeah. and the, the resurrection, uh, the event itself, obviously, um, but the people who believed in the resurrection, who you know, that changed. The course of their their life it changed the course of the history of the Roman Empire, uh, you could say, and change I mean change the the world over um, for centuries to come. Still yep. is changing the world over. Yeah, turn the world upside down. 
Very cool. Well, thank you for joining us on this uh, late Easter Resurrection episode. episode. Uh, this has been a fantastic episode to record. I know that sometimes people are like, well, you guys talk about the resurrection all the time. I mean, this, is, this episode well, really highlights we've got why. Some, I mean, we've got some uh, pretty good, uh, forceful, actually, teaching from Christ saying that that's the thing to do. Uh, and if we're not doing <laughs> it, there's no reason for this show. So, uh, once again, thank you for listening. If you want to find out uh, more great podcasts and things like that, you can check out uh, the show notes in this show. I'll have a, a list of the other podcasts on the 1517 Network that we've talked about. That network is launching, uh, I think, in about a week from now, too, when we'll have official links up for everybody to go uh, see that and subscribe to all the shows that the 1517 is producing. So once again, uh, thank you for listening to this show. He's risen. He's risen indeed. indeed. Hallelujah.